I want to dive into today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of James. James is where we've been for the last several weeks. We've been in a series called Faith That Works, and this has been a study out of the book of James. And so far we've talked about discovering joy and wisdom in times of trials in chapter 1. We, then we talked about the differences of, uh, between a living faith and a dead faith in chapter 2. And we talked about how our words matter. They matter greatly and how we can use our tongues to breathe life or breathe death with our words. And we talked about that in light of James chapter 3. And if you missed any of those messages, they're all on our website. You can watch them at your leisure. But today, we come to chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at a specific uh, portion of chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And so at this time, I'm going to invite Aaron to come back up and read today's scripture passage for us. And we'll spend a few moments unpacking James in this particular passage. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We'll also put the text up here on the screen for you to look along. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if, you, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Amen. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Friends, I've titled my message this morning... <coughs> An incompatible faith. An incompatible faith. When we speak of compatibility issues or compatibility, we're usually talking about how one thing works together with another thing. How one thing fits together with another thing. When we think of compatibility, we, tend to, we usually think about a, a match or a perfect fit. Now, maybe for you, when you think about compatibility, you hear that word and you think about a relationship between two people, right? Uh, how two people fit together or perhaps how they don't. Uh, you know, my, my wife and I would occasionally play this game called Who Got Lucky? Uh, you know, whenever we're out in public, we, we, we look around, we people watch, and we ask ourselves, okay, so, so, so who got lucky here? You know, who, who got lucky? I know it's a terrible game because we're 
judging people totally on their looks, you know, but, but, but we, we, we have fun. We're like, who, who got lucky here? You know, like, and maybe you've been there, you know, you, you ask yourself like, you know, how, how, how did these two people end up together? Now, maybe for you, it's not even based off of looks. Maybe you know the two people and based off of their personality type or based off of their interests or like, you're like, really, how did the two of you like end up to, like together? Right? Or maybe you think on the other side of the, you're, you're more of the optimist and you're like, oh, they're a perfect fit. They're a perfect match. Like they're a match made in heaven. And some of you guys are looking at, you're sitting next to your boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah, that's you, babe. That's you. Yeah, it's like, yes, ah, we're, we're a perfect match. So that's, we're talking about compatibility, right? Like two things or two people that sort of fit together or how they don't. Uh, maybe for you techies out there, tech-savvy folks, uh, how many of you have found that message pop up on your devices? This device is not compatible. You're like, ah, oh, you know, this is like, and then now it causes great frustration because now you've got to find a workaround, whether it's a software issue, a hardware issue, whatever it is. The thing you're trying to work with is not just fitting into the workflow that you're trying to do and work with. It's incompatible. It's incompatible. It doesn't fit or work well together. Friends, what if I were to tell you today that your faith is incompatible? But now, incompatible with what? Incompatible with what exactly? Well, James, in today's passage, seems to indicate that our faith is incompatible with the ways of this world. Our faith is is ultimately incompatible with the ways of this world, that our faith is actually not supposed to fit neatly into the systems of this world. That our faith as Jesus followers will not work perfectly according to the ways of this world. In fact, James explicitly puts it this way in verse 4. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world, in other words, compatibility with the world, with the ways of this world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Can I suggest something to us here this morning? Some of you are not going to like what I have to say here. I think the modern day Christian, the average Christian of today, works far too hard to try to fit into this world that we were never intended to fit into. I think the average Christian today works far too hard to try to fit into this world that we were actually never intended to fit into. I see this happen all the time. I see this happen in my own life. You know, there, there's... Well, I won't go there. I won't go there. Uh, that, that, that's for another time. Um, I, I see this happen in my life. I see, I see this happen all the time, even on this campus. I see this happen in the lives of so many others. So many of us try to make it a point to make Christianity not weird. Like that, for some of us, it feels like that's our life goal. Like, I follow Jesus, but right under that sort of goal and, and, and ambition for my life is to make that not so weird. You know, like it's like, I follow Jesus, but I'm not a weirdo. I'm not one of those. You know, like how, how, many, of us have, how many of us have caught us saying that or even thinking that? It's like, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those Christians. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not 
weird or I'm not, you know, but so many of us, we, we try to make it a point to make Christianity not so weird, to, to make our faith in Jesus more acceptable. And whenever we do that, here's what ends up happening. We end up conforming to the ways of this world in an effort to make the Christian faith more palatable for a non-believing world. Now, let me just say this real quick. There is nothing wrong. Okay, I'll just, I'll just say this. There's nothing wrong with trying to be a little less weird, okay? Some of you are a little weird, you know? You, 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 know, you, you can work on being a little less weird, okay? Yeah, let me just put that out there, okay? And, and, and some of you wear your weirdness like a badge of honor. Like, hey, you rock that thing. That's cool, man. But, like, but, but I, I'll say this. For those of us who are like, I just don't want to be like a, one of those weird Christians. Like, okay, I get it. I get it. That, that, there's a part of that that's very normal. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think that there's anything wrong with trying to be winsome with our faith. I don't think that there's anything wrong with trying to, to, to be sort of, um, you know, very accepting or, or trying to help our Christian faith be more acceptable in this world. In fact, I'll say this, I don't want to unnecessarily put up barriers for people to embrace the loving, life-transformative message of the gospel. I don't want to put up barriers and uh, blockades unnecessarily. But I actually think some of us might have gone too far with that. I think some of us try to be so normal, according to the world standards, that we end up looking no different than the world. We end up abandoning our faith and loyalty to Jesus in the name of making Jesus more acceptable to the world. Can I just say something? Jesus doesn't need our help in being more acceptable to the world. If you study the Gospels, he did a very good job at that. He was really good at at, at presenting himself so that the world accepted him. In fact, more often than not, if you look through the Gospels, we find that Jesus was widely accepted by sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves, party animals, drug addicts, all kinds of carnal people of the world of his time loved being around Jesus. In other words, all the people that we would normally think would not embrace Jesus today were the very people who were drawn to him. Jesus does not need our help of being more acceptable and palatable to the world. What Jesus needs is a people that would represent him accurately. What he needs is a people that would represent him well. He doesn't need us to sanitize him or make him more palatable to a non-believing world. If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he doesn't need our help in that way. What he needs is a people that would represent him in this world well. And that's precisely what James is getting at here. He's saying, stop trying to fit in. Stop trying to fit into a place where you were never intended to fit into. Your faith is supposed to be incompatible with the ways of this world. Now, there are a few ways that shows up in today's text. And I want to highlight a few of those. James says, instead of trying to live according to the ways of this world, he says, instead, learn to walk in the ways of kingdom alignment. Kingdom alignment. The reason why our faith is so incompatible with this world is because we were actually made for another world. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. That's that's a C.S. Lewis thought. That's not my thought. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity, one of my favorite uh, all-time works from from C.S. Lewis. He said it this way. 
He said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give, to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another kind of kingdom. See, this is essentially what James is saying in the opening verses of this chapter. In verse 2, he says, you see, guys, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, your heart, friends, is misaligned. It's misaligned. And so as long as your heart is misaligned, you're going to continue to be frustrated when you don't get what you want because what you want is ultimately not in line with what God wants in your life. That's what we mean by kingdom alignment. Is your life aligned with the kingdom of God? Is the rule and reign of God properly aligned with your life? You see, the best prayer to pray, friends, can I just offer this up? There, there's, there, there are several prayers that God will always answer. Several prayers that God will always answer. Pray that God, one of those prayers is, God, I want what you want for my life. You want to know the ways of this world, the ways of this world, the, the, the way that the world, did you know that the world teaches us how to pray? The world teaches us how to pray. The way the world teaches us how to pray is, I want what I want. I want what I want. Forget what any of you, forget what you want for me. Forget what anyone else wants for me. Forget what God wants for me. I don't, I don't, I want what I want. James says, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're missing the point. If you call yourself a Jesus follower or someone who is loyal to the ways of the kingdom of Christ, you're praying the wrong prayer. He's saying, pray, God, I want what you want. You, you see how those two prayers are incompatible. You cannot pray in one vein, I want what I want, and say in the same breath, God, I want what you want. The two are in conflict. James says, pray, God, I want what you want for me. Align my life with kingdom values. Align my life with kingdom priorities, kingdom alignment. I want to walk in the ways of kingdom Alignment. You want to know at least one thing that God wants for your life? We pray, God, I want what you want for my life. Here's one thing that God wants for your life. He not only wants you to learn to walk in the ways of kingdom alignment, he wants you to adopt the ways of humility and submission. Humility and submission. That's my second point for this morning. There are many things that God would want for your life. One of those things is for you to adopt the ways of humility and submission. James says it this way in verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Friends, how many of you know that one of the tactics of the enemy, one of his favorite tactics to use, is to get you to adopt the ways of not humility and submission, or rather pride and independence. If he can get you to live in the ways of pride and independence, he knows he's won. He knows he's won. In fact, if you look at how a world operates, is it not in the ways of pride and independence? 
I mean, this in a lot of ways feels like its own sort of message here. And so we won't dive too deeply into this. But think about this. Pride says, boost yourself up, be self-promoting, fight for yourself, be at the top of your game, be number one. Otherwise, you're a nobody. You're a nobody. I mean, that is a very subtle message, even on this campus like ours. You get out of this campus, it's all over. It's over. Be number one, right? Like, you've got you've to be the best in your industry. You've got to be the top of the class. You've got you to beat out your competition and all of these things. Now, none of those things are inherently wrong. They're not terrible at first. And, and we hear that and we think, man, that's just, that just sounds like a good Instagram post, you know? It just sounds like, you know, like, yeah, motivational, like, be number one, be the best, beat out your competition and all these things. And, and we hear that and it doesn't sound terrible to us at first. But that's because we've been conditioned by a world that is steeped in pride. Pride in all sorts of subtle ways that rears its ugly head in our day-to-day life which then actually leads us to a life of greater independence. We, we love our independence. We love our independence. We, we celebrate it. We exalt it. We hail it. We, we hail our... Now, now, don't get me wrong. I love that we live in a free country. I love, I honor those who consistently fight for our freedoms that we get to take part in here in our country. But can I remind us, we are not countrymen first. We are kingdom people first. That is not anti-American. That just makes us scripturally sound people. I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, I, I, you know the, the, no to the U.S. flag or no to that. And that, that's not I'm, not, I'm not even getting into any of that. But we got to understand that if we celebrate independence, our own sort of pride, you know, stand on my own two feet, build my own life on my own, we are missing a critical aspect of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the gospels does, does, do you find Jesus celebrating this idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get her done. Come on, do this thing called life. No, no, he says, apart from me, you can't do anything. That's not independence. That is dependence on the, on, on the top tier level. He says, abide in me and you will bear fruit. But apart from me, you will bear no good fruit. This idea of independence and pride is incompatible with the ways of God. But you see, everything around us, the spiritually enemy of our soul included, seeks to pull us and pull our hearts into a life of pride and independence. But our faith is incompatible with the ways of pride and independence. In fact, I love Andrew Murray. I, I've, I've quoted him before in the past. Andrew Murray is a South African historical theologian and author from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he wrote a small little book. I'd encourage you to pick it up. A small little book called Humility. And he states very simply in that book, just this one little, small little book with this small little phrase it just gets the heart of what James is, I think, trying to say. He says, pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. That, that, that's, that's how incompatible pride and independence is to the Christian faith. Now, now can, I, can I give you, just extend that? 
quote just a little bit. Murray continues on elsewhere, and he says this about humility. He says this. Let's do what he says. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret, and I am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. I love that. See, you see that? That's what happens when we adopt the ways of humility and submission. It's to enjoy perfect contentment perfect union and harmony with the heart of Christ in whatever state of life we're in. We get to that point through the way of humility and submission. Again, I, I, there's just so much that we can even unpack there. We're just going to leave it for there for now. The ways of God is the ways of humility and submission that is incompatible with the ways of this world. Now, let me offer you this last point. The ways of contrition. The ways of God is through the ways of contrition. If we're not to walk in the ways of this world, we see in this passage that we're called to walk in the ways of contrition. Now, what do we mean by contrition? To be contrite is to be remorseful for one's wrongdoing or to be sorrowful for one's wrongful deeds or actions. To use a more biblical term, it is to be repentant. It's to be repentant. James has an interesting word for us in, in verses 8 through 10. He, he says this. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, which is a promise that I hold on to every single day. It's like, why, why, do, we, why do we gather like this? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why, why do we do all of this? Because we're, this is an expression of drawing near to God. And Scripture promises us that when we do that, when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Sounds wonderful, right? Amen. But then James goes on, and he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Can we go back to the drawing near to God? Like, that was way more fun. Like, God drawing near to me, that sounds, ah, like a warm sun ray shining on my face. That, that's, I like that. And then he's like, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's that message of humility and submission again in verse 10. He circles back around to that. But before that, James has got some hard words for us. You know, th these aren't exactly the most affirming, the most flowery, the most encouraging words to hear, you know, like, which is interesting because just last week, if you were with us, we talked about speaking life-giving words. James, what's up, man? These don't seem like life-giving words. It seems like you're using your tongue to, to beat us up here a little bit. Like, it seems like quite the opposite. But listen now, James isn't trying to discourage us or to speak death words over us. 
He's also not telling us to, to be a bunch of Debbie Downers, right? Like, or, or to live with a constant cloud over our heads. You know, you read this, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, right? Like, it seems like, you know, like, what? You know, and I wonder if you know people like that. You, you know, they, they just... They seem like they live their lives under a cloud 24-7, right? Like it's like they see all of life through this sort of negative lens and, 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 and it, it feels like, yup, 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 yup. I can think of someone who models this real well. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Laughter turned to mourning and joy turned to gloom. I know people like that, right? Like, but, but is that what James is talking about? Is James actually encouraging us to live sort of this sort of downcast life and, oh, you know, woe is me. Life is so hard, you know. It's like I just life is beaming out. And look, I know life is hard, but life can't be hard all the freaking time. You know, it's like, come on, like just wait, wait, is there any sliver of hope in your life, right? But but we know people like that. And sometimes, granted, true confession, if I if I get into a place of real self-pity, I could get myself in that place. I wonder if you found yourself in that place ever before. This this place of real self-pity pity and self-hatred and self-degradation and it's real easy to feel like oh you know like just this is that what James is calling us to I honestly don't think that's what James is calling us to in fact I know that's not what he's calling us to he's calling us to the ways of contrition which is different from a life of negativity Contrition is not the same as living with a cloud over your head. Contrition is not equal to self-pity. It is not the same as self-hatred or self-degradation. That is not what contrition is. To be contrite is a posture of our hearts before God that recognizes our sinfulness, our fallenness, our shortcomings. It's a recognition of all the ways that, as Romans tells us, that we fall short of the glory of God. In other words, it's having an honest and realistic view of our humanity before God. By the way, that's what confession is. Uh, to be contrite in heart actually calls us to practices of confession, which actually in the Protestant church, we're not terribly good at. I'm not saying the Catholic Church has this down pat, but, but in the Protestant Church, we don't do confession terribly well. You know what confession is? Confession is simply coming before a holy God and saying, I agree with you with the status of my sinfulness. That's what confession is. Confession isn't the sort of this whipping yourself in the back and, and, and again, like, woe is me, self-pity, like, I, you know, I'm such a bad person, I'm such a bad person. No, no, no. Confession is simply coming before a holy God and saying, yes, God. The things that are, bringing, are, are, are being brought before the light, I agree. This is wrong. I agree. There's something broken in my life. I agree. There's, there, there's, there's something wretched and, and gloom-filled in my life. That's, that's confession. But if all you do is stop at confession, you're going to continue living your life, woe is me. I hate my life. I hate myself. You're going to continue living yourself in that way. Confession should always lead you to a place of repentance. There's another word that we don't like, but repentance is simply this. God, I'm coming to you in confession, agreeing with you. I agree that this thing in my life is broken and it's flawed. Now, repentance is, Lord, I am now turning away from that and I turn 
to you. I now turn away from those things that which are, are weighing me down and are, and are intrinsically broken and flawed in me. Lord, I turn away from that and I turn to you for you are my only hope for that. You're my only hope for rescue and redemption from that. You see, to be contrite in heart is to come before the Lord in a spirit that says, Lord, I come confessing, agreeing, acknowledging that my life is hopelessly flawed and broken. And without you, I have no hope for this. But because of you, I'm given an avenue out. I'm given a, a free exit out of that called repentance. I, I turn away from that and I turn towards you. That, that's why, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 51, verse 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Can I just read that one more time? Worship team, I'm gonna invite you guys up here as we, as we prepare to go into communion. In fact, if you don't mind, just, just, would you just close your eyes for a minute? And I just wanna read this verse one more time to you. Psalm 51, verse 17, the psalmist writes this, the sacrifices of God, in other words, the things that honor God, the things that please God, the things that bring joy and delight to the heart of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Friends, there is nothing that moves the heart of God more than anything else than seeing his children come to him in pure, brutal honesty about all of our brokenness, about all of our failures, all of our fears and worries, all of our mistakes, all of our regrets. There's nothing that moves the heart of God more than anything else than seeing his children come to them in pure, brutal honesty with all of our heart. Because it's in those places we see the power of God at work and on full display. One of the places where I feel most remorseful and sorrowful of my sins is actually at the Lord's table. Because it's at the Lord's table that Jesus addresses my contrite heart. You know, when I, when I come to these elements, the, the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus I come face to face with my own brokenness. I come face to face with my own shortcomings and my own depravity. I come face to face with all the different ways that I fall short of the glory of God. And I feel contrition. I, I feel remorse. I feel heartbroken. I feel all of that. But what these elements represent to us is that we don't have to stay there. Though we fall short of the glory of God, God in Christ Jesus made a way for us so that we can walk, so that we can really learn to walk in the ways of kingdom alignment, so that we can really learn to walk in the ways of true humility and submission so that we can truly walk in the ways of contrition. Jesus made a way for us so that we don't have to be left in our brokenness. But God made a way so that we can walk in wholeness in him. 